Good afternoon, everybody. This is going to be a little bit of a test, but I want you to get your swords in the air. We're doing a sword drill. You guys know what a sword drill is. Get your swords in the drill, and if it's your phone, that's okay. I don't know how okay, but it's a little bit okay. Like if you brought your Bible to church today, put it in the air. Because you shouldn't be embarrassed if it's your phone, because if, you're, if that's what you're doing, then uh, don't be embarrassed about it. So you know how sword drill works? I'm going to call it a scripture, and then once I've called it out, you get your sword, and as soon as you, got it, you found the verse, you stand up, and then you get to read it. All right? And if that makes you nervous, I'll read it for you. Matthew 10, 2-4. Oh, is there supposed to be a chant or something? or what? Oh, go, I just called it out. Love it. Love it. Darren actually beat you to the punch, but he was gentle in his reading, so. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I noticed that in your translation, it calls him Simon the Canaanite? Interesting. It says Simon the Zealot in mine. And I'll have to do some more studying. I think that word actually means exactly the same thing. But uh, let's do one more. Denise says I'm supposed to say go. Okay, fine. We'll see if that makes a difference for you, Denise. Get your swords in the air. Yeah, no pressure. Go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like half the group flinched. That was great. John? No, get your swords up there. John 4, verse 2, go. Nice work. <laughs> We're working on a series. Keep your finger right there because... We're working, that's going to be a very relevant verse in a second. We're working on a series of messages about the, uh, from the Gospel of John. And this message is a little bit of a... Oh, man. I was really brave with the second group this morning, and I'm going to tell you the same thing. You know what I, I often imagine when I preach? If I could have it my way, I would like to grab everybody by the collar, pull them right close... Give them like a one, two, and switch hands, and that's what I would love to do in every sermon. Yeah, you didn't. I would just like to speak the truth in that kind of a boldness. And I 
probably should have gone to Bible school and then they would have taught me much better etiquette. But that's what I imagine in my head. But the problem with today's sermon is that it's going to be much more random than that. Random, if that's the word. That, that might have been the wrong word. But here's what I mean. We're just going to read just. Just going to read through a passage of Scripture. And do you guys ever notice that when you read through a passage of Scripture, today something jumps out at you and you're like, oh, that is so good. That's what I needed right now. Or sometimes a little convicting and whew, might have needed to hear that one right now. And then... You read that same passage of Scripture a month later or a year later, and something completely different jumps out at you. You ever notice that? So today, when we're working through this passage of Scripture, there is at least five very, very different topics in there. And so I am unapologetically just going to work through some Scripture, and I don't know if it's going to be the, the first point that kind of is striking, or the second one, or the third one, or the fifth one, or, or if the Lord just does something completely on His own and does something in your life. That could happen to It doesn't even have to have anything to do with the sermon. Did you know that? The Lord is quite creative in how He speaks. He does speak now one way, now another. Where is that found? Job. I think it's, I think it's 33, verse 4 maybe. I don't know. It's in Job somewhere. Why don't you guys join me in prayer? We're just going to ask the Lord if he would speak to us as we read his scripture. Lord, I just, it is just such a privilege to serve you, Lord. I just am thankful that I get to be, I don't get to be one of the 12 apostles, Lord, but I get to be one of your disciples because I want to be a student of yours. And so it actually excites me to read scripture, Lord, and I, and I know I've had the advantage of, of really soaking in some of this for a time before talking here today. And, and that is a privilege, Lord. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that as we talk about some of these things that we read in Scripture, some of these concepts that tell us who you are and how you relate to humans, could you come and stir that up in us, Lord? Where we have opportunity to celebrate and just praise you for how good you are and how we see a good part of our life going then let us just celebrate with you. And if you want to bring conviction where we maybe need to change or something, then, then Lord, just do that and help us to respond quickly. We invite you to come, Holy Spirit, and stir and shake us if that's what we need. And everybody who agreed said, Amen. Do you guys remember the name of the 12, 12 apostles that... Ed just read their names. Ooh, somebody was saying one, two. Just shout, just shout out a name. Bartholomew, good one. Thaddeus. Okay, I heard a couple. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch. You, you guys are on the right track. Here's what I want to read. Let's start reading in John chapter 3, because this is going to get really interesting right quick. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Yeah. <laughs> if you're reading your Bible and you're looking down, that's okay. But if you're not reading your Bible, then read with me, okay? Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem, went into the Judean countryside, spent some time with him there. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Enon near Salem, 
because there was plenty of water there. Isn't that just awesome? Like, where should we go baptize? Well, we need water. Right? I love that concept. We're going to need lots of water. I love it. And people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. Do you recall who read John 4, verse 2? Is that Scott? Do you recall the words that Scott read? Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing, it was the disciples. That's what it says in John chapter 4, verse 2. This is John chapter 3, verse 22. And it says here that Jesus spent some time with them there baptizing people. That is not a contradiction in Scripture. John is not contradicting himself. It's actually pointing to an awesome truth. A fascinating truth about who Jesus is. Because you know what's happening here? Jesus is doing a ministry. It is obviously him who is doing the work. So much so that when people went from there and they're like, what's going on back there? I don't know, Jesus is baptizing people. That's, what, that's how the rumor mill went out with. Well, actually, it wasn't even a rumor. It was the truth. But he, Jesus was doing a ministry there of baptizing people, but it was actually his disciples who were in the water doing like the waterworks part of it. He does that kind of stuff to us. That kind of a partnership is fascinating. Do you think his disciples felt worthy to be the one that's baptizing when Jesus was right there? Probably not. If they had any clue of what was going on, they didn't feel worthy. I can guarantee it. But Jesus is doing a work, and he's allowing his disciples to actually join him in the ministry. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. He does this kind of, that level of partnership, which is the most lopsided partnership in the universe. Yeah, amen to that. Is astounding because it even is a partnership. But he does, God does that to us with prayer as well. He exhorts us. In other words, he challenges or calls us to pray. But in that, he tells us to pray his will into being. So he, he essentially needs to tell us what to pray what kind of things to pray for, he's going to answer the prayer. He gives us the life and breath to even form the words and the brain and intellect to think about those words that how we should pray. He does everything for us. That's a pretty lopsided partnership. But he says, pray that my kingdom will come just on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Why don't you pray that the Lord of the harvest is going to send out workers into his harvest field? Is that the Lord's will? Of course it is. But he tells you to pray. He partners like that. And he's the one then who even answers the prayer. Paul said in Colossians 1.29, he said, To this end I labor, so Paul was laboring, but struggling with all of the God's energy that was so powerfully working in him. Acts 17.25 says, uh, God is not served uh, by, by human hands as though he needed anything. He gives all men life and breath and everything else. He doesn't need anything. So why would he allow us to partner with him? Why would he allow his disciples to be the ones baptizing? I'll ask an easier question. Were the disciples baptizing? 
Yes, that's what it says in John 4, verse 2, right? Isn't that fascinating that Jesus wouldn't just do all the work himself? You ever wonder, you ever wonder what kind of things we even get to bring to the table? How much do, we, do, you, do you and I bring to the table? Suppose you're involved in ministry, and by the way, every one of you is, because you're going you're gonna to influence somebody. Let's just make the assumption that you're intentionally doing it to bring them to Jesus, whether it's your kids or your friends or our Sunday school class or a youth group or somehow, some way, or worship team, whatever. You're involved in a ministry. How much do you get to bring to the table to change people's lives? A surrendered heart. I think in the most basic sense, I agree 100%, that the most basic sense of it is this. We kind of get two things that we can maybe contribute, if you would call it that. One is we can be like Isaiah and put up our hands and say, I'll go. Who's going to go? I'll, I'll, I'll go. You can send me. And then secondly, we can determine what percentage of our heart, mind, soul, and strength we're actually going to commit to Jesus. What's your level of engagement? You get to decide. That's it. God does everything else. All the fruit comes from Him. So when Jesus is baptizing... He's in the ministry, but it's his disciples in the water. How do you think that went? What, like, and uh, the scripture doesn't, scripture doesn't say, so I'm just wondering. I'm allowing myself to ponder. Sometimes when I do that, it actually really intrigues me about who Jesus is. And it makes me have a, have a man, I'd really like to get to know him more kind of a attitude. I don't know if you can relate to that. What do you think Jesus... Let's just imagine it was the 12 apostles there, and it doesn't say, but let's just imagine it was the 12, and they're in the water. Where's Jesus? What's he doing? You think he's on the shore preaching? That could be. He might be, he might be delivering the most powerful sermon, and people are repenting, and he just says, yeah, repent in the name of Jesus, and, and then uh, Peter is going to take care of you in the water there. He'll baptize you. What else could Jesus be doing? Singing? Eating? He might be. He might be, he might be turning food into more food, right? He did miracles like that. What if he's doing a miracle? What if he heals somebody? That person's probably going to want to get baptized. Yeah, Matthew's over there. Maybe you cast the demons out of this person. You want to get baptized? Perfect. Thaddeus is right here. Did he call Peter and say, Hey, Peter, uh... Come and tell him what happened yesterday. Okay, and then he'll finish. And then Jesus, what's he doing? I don't know. But there's a partnership happening there. You know what's what's fascinating to me? When I thought about this, it actually made me feel really normal. I haven't felt normal in about a year because of trying hard not to say certain words today. I haven't felt normal in about a year. I'll let you fill in the blanks, okay? Yeah, okay, cool. Imagine that you have a row of 12 of Jesus' apostles in the water baptizing. And I'm just guessing, I don't know that, but I'm just imagining the 12 that we read their names. What if they were all in the water? On this side over here, you got Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector. 
He's standing over here baptizing some people whenever they come his way, and then you got like ten in between. And then all the way over on this side, you got Sam, uh, Simon the Zealot. What does it mean to be a zealot in those days? Freedom fighter. Freedom fighter. Yeah, the zealots were known. Their desire was to overthrow the Roman government by force. Who is Matthew collecting taxes for? The Roman government. Can you imagine working on the same team, front lines? Jesus picked these 12. One of them has a reputation for what? What what does Matthew have a reputation for? He's a cheater. And he's... How would you describe his attitude towards the government? Servant of the government. He's supporting them. He gets paid by them. He's, he's upholding the law. And how would you describe Simon's relation to the government? He's probably in the rebellious nature. Guess what? Look at what it says in verse 22. People kept coming to him for baptism. Sorry. I'm going to go back a verse. And I just realized right now, I bet you I screwed up again here. I did. So I've been saying all morning, I've been pointing to go back a slide. I'll show you guys how this is great. Just realized I made another mistake again today. Yeah, again. So here's the mistake I made. Uh, If you look in your Bibles, I've been pointing to verse 22 and saying people were going to Jesus to being baptized. Because it says right there, and people kept coming to him for baptism. They actually were going to John the Baptist to be baptized, but in verse 24 or 26, it actually says they were going to Jesus to be baptized. So I've been mixing up verse 22 and 26. Okay? Just so you know, happen again. Anyway... Then Jesus and his disciples, so this is, this is what I love. People are, um, now I lost my track. Let's keep reading, and this is going to be, this is what I love. I love that people are coming. Jesus is baptizing people, so John 4 verse 2, we know that Jesus is baptizing people, and yet it's his disciples that are in the water doing the work. I love it that if people had been coming to Matthew or Simon to find out their opinion, they might have led them to their opinion of the government. But this is not what's happening. They are on the same team and they are doing business for Jesus. They are bringing people to Jesus. That's the business they're in. Amen? If you can figure out a way to apply that to today's current circumstance, then you're not going to feel as abnormal as I have felt for a year. Now I feel, after realizing this truth, I actually feel normal. I feel like, hey, we're just like the 12 apostles. Verse 25 says, A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you... 
identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everybody is going to him instead of to us. That'd be a real bummer, hey? People left your ministry to go find Jesus. Hey? (laughs) But if you knew your place, like John did, what are the kinds of things that John has already testified about Jesus? He has said that this is the man, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has surpassed me because he was before me. The reason I came baptizing with water is that he might be revealed to Israel. And John knew from the Father that who had sent him to baptize with water, that God told John, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's what he had testified about this Jesus. And so he knows his place. Look at verse 27. Then John replied, No one can receive anything unless, it, unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. John the Baptist knows his place. He is not concerned with getting the glory. He knows it's not his day, it's the Lord's day. Should I give you guys a good example of what, what, how I know he knew it was the Lord's day? Thank you. I'm going to keep reading verse 29, because I'll just let John the Baptist use the example. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at success. Must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. You raise your hand if you've ever been to a wedding. So typical wedding, this is what happens, right? Groom is standing over there, bride standing over here. Down the steps of the stage, you have the bridesmaids one side, down the steps over here, you got the groomsmen standing there. Beautiful picture. You put up something nice, white and shiny in the background. Throw up a few flowers and candles. You have a wedding, right? Put a nice runner down the aisle, right? It's beautiful. Can you imagine, or t- let's talk about this for a second. What is the role of a groomsman in a wedding? Holding the rings. Good one. Being a witness, I like it. Standing, yes. What's that? Errant, yes, errand boy. It's actually on my list. I wrote down four things. That's on my list, actually. If somebody's going to have to do a job, it should be the groomsman, not the groom, right? Not the bride. Let someone else get it. Groomsman might even give a little speech later, but the speech has to do with what? It's going to have to do with the bride and groom. A good groomsman might be able to do something that will be fun in his speech, but he's going to end up being like a blessing towards the groom or the bride. And he's standing there for a reason. Why is he standing there? We already said he's a witness and the errand boy. Yeah, he's got a relationship with that guy, and he's there to support him and celebrate that day with him. 
His job is not to be a grouchy miser. He is there to celebrate and enjoy that day with his friend and support his friend in it. Can you imagine now? Because it's, this fr- it's the groom's day and the bride's day, not the groomsman's day. Can you imagine at a wedding if a groomsman would try and make the day about him? Can you imagine when the, gr- when the couple is taking pictures and then every, every picture the groom's like, yay, right? <laughs> Photobombing every picture. When the guys walk up, groomsman is, hey, waving to his mom. Hey, kind of making it about himself, being a little bit louder than everybody else. Bride walks down the aisle and he's talking. They're saying their vows and he's whispering to his friend. How would you describe the attitude of someone like that? Yeah, super arrogant and prideful. Be revolting, actually, wouldn't it? In fact, a good groomsman, if he does his job well, and I'm picking on groomsmen, it could be a bridesmaids for all that matter too, but John the Baptist said groomsman, so that's where I'm going. A good groomsman, if he does his job well at a wedding, a year later, are you going to remember who he was? Are you going to remember who the groomsmen were? Probably not. That's not an insult to them. That means that they probably did their job well. It's not about them. It's about shining that light on the couple, right? John the Baptist says that's exactly our example for how we worship and glorify and honor the Lord. He knew his place. He's just the groomsman. The spotlight is on the groom. It's actually the way it's supposed to be. Verse 31 says, He has come from above and is than anyone else. We are of the earth and we speak of earthly things, but He has come and is greater than anyone else. Isn't that a beautiful statement? I'll read it one more time. I thought it was just a fascinatingly awesome statement. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth and we speak of earthly things, but He has come from heaven, and is greater than anyone else. Amen? And then it gets really sad. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but what he tells them. Have you ever felt like a failure when you tried telling somebody about Jesus and it didn't go well? (laughs) Have you ever been in a situation where you walked into that conversation and you know you're going to tell that person about Jesus like something and then you're like, oh man, it just, everything, just your words don't want to come out and then uh, it almost feels like they're trying to make it awkward but they probably actually don't have any idea. They just probably think you're weird, right? And, and maybe you go for it anyways and then man, they just seem disinterested and how can you be disinterested? And maybe you feel rejected or you feel like you could have done that better. How, like, how do you, maybe you feel misunderstood. Do you know that Jesus understands exactly that? He came to that which he created and his own did not recognize him. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. If that's how they treated Jesus, do you think that could be how they'll treat us? It's exactly what he said. We are the servants. He is the master 
no servant is greater than his. If that's how they treated me, that's how they're going to treat you, he said. Right? John 15, 20. If they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute you too. If they obeyed his teaching, guess what? They'll obey yours also. And some people did obey his teaching. Amen? But it is kind of sad how few believed. And that's not discouraging. That's not meant to be a discouraging word. That's reality. This is the same God who told Ezekiel and sent him out and said, You go tell, you're not being sent to a people of obscure language. You're being sent to your own people who understand your words. If you'd been sent to somewhere else, they probably would have listened. But you're getting sent to your own people, and your job is to speak. Whether they what? Listen or fail to listen. That's your job. Jesus gets that. So if you ever have felt misunderstood or ignored or you, like, you got the cold shoulder, you know, it, you know what it should do? It should change the way that you pray. Because you know what you could do? If you ever felt like that, you could turn that around and then ask Jesus this question. Jesus, how did it feel when you got rejected? Just listen in prayer a little bit on that one. You could ask them, Jesus, how did it feel when you were when people seemed disinterested. When you pray like that and expect the Lord to answer and you, you look to Him for wisdom and strength in that area, do you know you're following exactly His example? He often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He had His eyes fixed on the Father. And then He would listen to the Father and speak His words. Do you know that we can, we can actually study His words pretty easy today? We can even memorize them. We can even listen for them. And Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit. Are we given that opportunity today? Oh, don't make me come down there. Are we given that opportunity today? Yes. Verse 33. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true, for he, he is sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. That is a fascinating sentence. When it says, for God gives him the Spirit without limit... It reminds me, and I'm just going to read some scripture here. They're not going to be on the screen, so if you're taking notes, you could write them down. But Acts 10, verse 38 says this, And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That little, those couple words at the end, are incredibly striking, for God was with him. It's because God was with Jesus that he could, he could have the power to do those things. For God gives him the Spirit without limit. Leads me to say that it's a, it's a safe thing to say that he, Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit. And I... It says that God gave him the Spirit without limit. And I understand that. I also understand that he gave us of the same Spirit. 
Amen? <laughs> he gave us, we have a deposit in us, guaranteeing us of what is yet to come. That deposit is the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that Jesus depended on. In Ephesians 1, there's a passage from verse 16 to 20, maybe even a few verses more, but Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. Who's he praying for? Do you think they're Christians? Yeah, let's just say that they're Christians, okay? It's like, yeah, I hope so too. And so, it's like, imagine that somebody was praying the same kind of prayer for, for us as a church. You know what he prayed? He was constantly praying that they would have wisdom and revelation from God so that they would understand God better. Did they understand God fully? No, they didn't. Paul was praying that they would understand Him more. He was also praying that they would, have, they would understand the confident hope that we have in Jesus. And then in verse 19 and 20, he says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. This is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Come on, hey? Do you think they understood the power that was living inside them? Okay, I'm going to read it carefully again, and then I'll ask the same question. This is Paul's words in Ephesians 1.19, and I'm reading the NLT. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. Do you think they understood the great power? Do you think they fully understood? No. Why would you say no? Because he's praying for them that they would understand, right? They, have, there's, they need to understand more. This is Paul. Paul said he's constantly praying this, that they would understand this power that's inside them. This is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that lives inside of them. That's the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of you and me. That should be a little bit of an exciting truth. Let me ask you this question. How do you respond to a truth like that? Do you think that every Christian, including me, do you think that we understand fully the power that lives inside of us? I don't think so. The question is, gets really, this is a tough one. Do you want to? Do I want to? We, we should. <laughs> Why don't you do this? Participate, participate with me a little bit. I want you to just follow along an example. I'm going to tell you a story. You guys close your eyes. I want you to vividly imagine that you're right in there in the story. Okay? And then uh, uh, just imagine it as... I'll, I'll tell it just real quick here. And then you imagine that you're in it. Imagine that you are a kid. And you are just on your way home from school... And if you came home on the school bus, maybe you finished your lunch on the school bus, or as you walked home, you finished the last leftovers of your lunch. And as you slip into the front door of your house, you can hear your parents having a heated discussion. And one of them sounds quite arrogant, and you hear them saying something like, I don't need this. And then the one that said that walks down the hall, and you hear their footsteps go down the hall, and then you hear the creak of a bedroom door, and then the slamming of the door, 
and then it's quiet. Both parents are still in the house, so are you, but now it's completely quiet. One parent is sitting on the couch, seems to be patiently waiting for the other one to come back, but the other one is down the hall in another room with the door closed. And it is so eerily quiet in the house. For the rest of the evening, that quietness remains, the doors stay closed, your parents aren't talking, and it stays that way till morning. Parents are in the same house, just not talking. The house is so quiet that you can hear the ticking of the clock in the kitchen. Now suppose this happens the next day. Again, the exact same thing. And the day after that, and it keeps on repeating itself every day. You hear the same sounds. You hear the sounds of the footsteps walking down the hall. And then you hear the creak of the door and the close of the door. And then silence, just the ticking of the clock again. Parents aren't, haven't left, but they're not talking. And it's quiet, and the doors are closed. Now open up your eyes. Let me ask you some questions. In that story, are the parents still married? Yeah, sure they are. How would you describe, in a word, the atmosphere in the house? Tense, chilly, It's a bit stale in that house, isn't it? Is that what marriage is supposed to be like? No. What is marriage supposed to be like? Throw out a word of what marriage should be like. Joyful. Fun. Selfless. Fulfilling. There should be a relationship there, right? You would even expect to have some visiting happening. Working together. Laughter. There might even be a playful wink here and there. Companionship, friendship, that's what you would expect in a marriage. In a good marriage. Agreed? What if, in that story... You hear those same sounds every single day. You come in, you hear the footsteps down the hall, the creak of the door, slam of the door, and quiet. What if one day you hear a sound that you have heard every day? It's not the sound of talking, but it's the same sound of one of those sounds, but it's the sound of hope. What's the sound? It's the creak of the door. And you don't know in that moment, somebody pointed this out at an earlier service, you don't know if that's going to be like round two. But in that moment, if you think about that for all these times, you've never heard that door open a second time. And something different happening today. Today, you hear the door opening for a second time, that means somebody's coming out of the room. You've never heard that before. You just always heard them going in. What if in that example, one of those parents, the parent that marched down the hall, said some arrogant words, walked down the hall, 
close the door. What if that parent is you and me? And what if the other party in the relationship is the Holy Spirit? Now, I'd be so, I would be so generous as to say, I don't think anybody in here would slam the door in the Holy Spirit's face. But what if we kind of arrogantly even insinuated, maybe we didn't even say it with words, but we insinuated, I don't need this. We didn't even slam the door, we just closed it. Have we... I'll be so brave as to say this. Have you ever done that? Because I know I have. And I'm not talking about things that happened to me 20 years ago. I'm talking about things that happened to me recently, while I was the pastor. One, more than once, the Lord has convicted me about that. One of the times in particular... He challenged me in that moment I was praying with him. He challenged me with this thought. Delan, why don't you just open the door? My door is a little rusty. Needs the hinges to get popped out and put a little grease in there. So it opens a little easier. Right? But it's a little bit like David sang in Psalm 24, 7 to 10. He talks about these ancient doors, these ancient gates, and he just says, open up so that the king of glory could come in. A little bit like in Revelations 3, 19 to 20. Somehow Jesus is talking to a Christian, and yet he's on the outside of the door, and he's knocking at the door and saying, if anyone would just hear my voice and open the door, I'd like to come in and eat with him and he with me. It's a very sobering truth to read in Scripture that we have a choice of how we will interact and respond to the, our relationship with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to show you this next slide so that you know if you wanted to look at the Scriptures that I was thinking about when I put this up here. Those are the references. And the next slide will just put those words and so that we can understand the differences of how we can connect to the Holy Spirit. So go to the next slide. We have an opportunity to live by the Holy Spirit. We have an opportunity to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. We even have an opportunity to pray in the Holy Spirit. That has to mean, at some level, an openness to the Holy Spirit. We have an opportunity to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Or, we can live in such a way, Christians can live in such a way as to grieve or offend the Holy Spirit. Christians can harden their hearts to Him and even put out the fire of the Holy Spirit. So if you go back to that example that I gave you of the married couple with one of them walking down the hallway... What about if we just talked about your relationship with the Holy Spirit being in a home? What's the atmosphere of the home? Some of us 
are going to be in a place where we can celebrate because it's good. There's life there. And it's so good. You sometimes have joyous times. There's playful times. There's so serious times. But it is good because there's companionship and a relationship. And sometimes if you're like me, maybe you need to just start with opening the door. Let's go to verse 35. Different branch. (laughs) The father loves his son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who in God's son has eternal life, anyone who doesn't, the son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. Do you see how John is contrasting those words believe and obey? As, almost as though they were opposites. Sorry, believe and obey would be the same. I guess disbelief would be the opposite of obey, or disobey the opposite of belief. You know why that is? It's because obedience is the action of belief. If you believe something to be true, you act a certain way. That's as simple as that. I remember what I think is the first sermon that Kevin Friesen preached in our church. And Kevin, if you've thought about this and I'm wrong, then you can, it won't be the first time. But here's what he did. There's a screw hook in the ceiling right here at the peak of the ceiling. I, looked, I tried looking at it in the first service and I blinded myself in the light. So I'm not looking up there, okay? <laughs> but there's still a hook there. It's the only reason I think that hook has ever been... Oh, maybe somebody used it for a fun night once. But basically, that's the only reason that hook is up there. It's because Kevin was doing a sermon. He put a hook up there, tied a long string to it, and then something like a bowling ball at the end of the string. That's a long pendulum. And then he pulled it over here, and he had somebody sit on a chair facing the, facing the bowling ball. And he said, I'm going to just release the bowling ball from here. What's going to happen? It's going to swing way out there, and then it's going to come right back to your face. But because physics is, is how things work on this planet, it's not going to come quite as far as where I was holding it. It's actually only going to stop over here somewhere. And then if it swung again, it would probably only stop over there, and then the third time it would be over here, right? That's how it works. If you believe that, that person won't even be scared when he lets go of the bowling ball, will he? But if he doesn't believe it, what's going to happen? Ah! Right? Why would you be scared? You're only scared if you don't believe. But if you believe that that ball is not going to hit you, you are not scared because obedience is the action of belief. It's the same thing over here. Anybody who believes in God's Son obeys. God's son. And look at this. And they have eternal life. Anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. I love it how that's worded. This is not just a a hope and a wish kind of thing. There's actually something that you already have. Yes, we are expecting to die and after that face judgment and then experience eternal life. 
We know that's coming. But the way this is written, it actually says that we have eternal life. That level of confidence, we've got it. In fact, it's written in such a way that it alludes to the fact that you can already taste what you have. That's how much confidence you can have. People taste it in a variety of ways, but let me just give you a couple examples. If you've ever felt... This happens to some people sometimes. They come into church when they're singing or sometimes during the church, all of a sudden they just feel like weeping because it's like they're in the Lord's presence. That is a little taste. Maybe it's happened to you when you're praying or something. That's a little taste of what eternity is going to be like. Or maybe you're, even though your life is in a bit of a mess and there's some challenges there that look a little impossible, and yet you are just filled with this supernatural peace and you just feel like it's going to be okay because Jesus is in control, that is a little taste of what eternity is going to be like. You might even feel like smiling because of Jesus. Not because of your circumstance. That's a taste of what's coming. But what's significant about that word remain? What, is, what does the word remain mean? To stay. To stay where? Yeah, but the word remain. So if you're, let's, okay, let's just make sure we all understand what the word remain means. If you remain seated, where are you going to stay? Because you already were, yeah, you already were there, right? Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains, they already were there, under God's angry judgment. Just like John 18, 3.18 says, anyone who does not believe stands condemned already. You stand condemned already because you have not believed. In a similar way that Christians can actually taste glimpses of what's coming in eternal life, in this world we can actually taste glimpses of what's not coming in eternal life. But in eternal judgment, we can taste his judgment. There's, the Bible describes it as death even. In Romans 8, it says uh, the, the mind of sinful man is death. Not only that we are going to die, but we can actually taste it already. Ephesians and Colossians say that we were dead in our transgressions. In other words, dead in our sins. Were we actually physically dead? No. We're experiencing the consequence of sin, but we're actually physically alive. Luke 15, the, the story of the prodigal son and the father. Remember what the father said? The father described his son this way. This, is, this son of mine was dead. Last service, there was like a four-year-old boy who just shouted that out, dead. I'm like, I don't even know how he knew that. This son of mine was dead and he's alive again. Was his son actually physically dead? No, it's not, it's not a story about somebody getting raised from dead. It's a story about somebody who was far from God and came home. The consequence of sin is death. Describes the lost or describes those who don't believe. It can already be felt. It's a, it's a little taste of what's coming in eternity. Eternity. 
It's not the kind of death that says you, don't, you no longer exist. But you're realizing the physical and spiritual aspect of being separated from God. We talked about this on Good Friday. We've all see, actually tasted bits and pieces of this. If you've ever owned a piece of metal that got rusty, that's a little taste. A very, very little taste. What's a taste? If you ever have had something that broke down or needed to be replaced, or if you had something in your body like your teeth that started to decay, or if you ever knew something living or someone living that got sick or got old or died, it's a taste of what's coming for eternity. For non-believers, the worst is yet to come. According to these verses, they are going to remain under God's angry judgment. For non-believers, the worst is yet to come. But for believers, what is it? The best is yet to come. Amen? And you already have it. Can you taste it? Lord, Lord, I just... Oh, Jesus, I just ask that as we read your scripture, could you make this alive in us that we would even remember and recall what's written in your word? I even think of Paul's words in Corinthians when he said, man, through the foolishness of what was preached, some were saved, actually. These are just English words. They don't, they don't measure up to your fullness, your greatness. We need your Holy Spirit to wake us up and give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so then we will know you better. Lord, if, if there is any way that I need to repent for my misunderstanding of my partnership with you, or if I just need to celebrate it, Lord, please show that to me. Lord, if there is, if there is somehow that I have ever tried to be like an obnoxious groomsman who is trying to steal the show, Lord, just bring that to my mind quickly so that I could apologize. I just want to shine the spotlight on you, Lord. This is your day. And if I've been that good groomsman, Lord, help me to just celebrate this day with you. What a glorious day, the Lord's day. Lord, and if I have been already celebrating my relationship with you, Holy Spirit, and it's just been so good and rich and life-giving and fresh and vibrant. Lord, help me to celebrate that and just enjoy it. And if that has been really stale, Lord, maybe just prompt me to open the door. And I thank you, Lord, that you're like that good father with your arms open wide at the end of the driveway waiting I know I said sitting on the couch, but you are just waiting there with your arms open. You desire to have fellowship with us. Lord, and if I need to be convicted because maybe I haven't believed this taste for eternity, either in heaven or in hell, Lord, I pray that I would have that in my heart, that I would have, I would have my eyes fixed on eternity, that I would be so looking forward to heaven with all of its goodness and with your presence there. And at the same time, I would be aware that there are those who, unless they change, 
Right now, as it stands, they are remaining under your judgment. Lord, give me a burden for them that I might reach out and bring them with me. Lord, I just thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for how you bring it alive and stir into our hearts. We love you, Jesus. Anyone who agreed said,